0: Reports from the Democratic Republic of Congo say more than 100 people are now thought to have died in a boat accident. A vessel packed with passengers capsized on Lake Tanganyika in the southeast of the country on Friday. Such accidents are fairly common in the region as ferries are often extremely overloaded. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Europe is on its back. Now, it's really impacting everything.
2: Economic efficiencies, which means some more job
1: opportunities. More stable investment
0: has been the preferred as a clause. Money for the
2: Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing on this Monday morning with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. Shinzo Abe faces a policy balancing act after commanding a sweeping election victory in Japan. The yen advances after the vote and oil drops to nearly $60 a barrel as OPEC resists output cuts. Today on Money for Nothing, we will talk about the top three technology trends likely to shape our personal and professional lives in 2015. Joining us for that discussion from Singapore is Sandra Ng of IDC Asia Pacific. And for insight into global business trends, we'll check in with our Washington-based international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. We'll also get a sneak peek at last Friday's Opsant activities on the UBS trading floor. And with us as guest host this morning is Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Anita. So, Richard, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's gamble on early elections paid off with a sweeping victory. His party has retained two-thirds of the lower house of parliament, and this also puts pressure on him to reverse a recession.
0: My Abenomics policies are still only halfway done. But I believe we've
2: moved away from those dark times two or three years ago. I'm aware that there are still a lot of people
0: who are still not feeling the benefits of my policies. But it's my duty to bring those benefits to those very people. And I believe this election made that clear.
2: OPEC will stand by its decision not to cut oil output even if prices fall as low as $40 a barrel. So how are the emerging markets making the oil story work for them? Here's Mark Mobius of Franklin Templeton Emerging Markets.
3: The impact is tremendous. In some countries, it's uh, disastrous. If you look at Nigeria, for example, uh, they're dependent upon oil for a large part of their budget, so they have to do something to either revive the economy by reform, uh, which they can do and could have a big impact, or they just have to suffer through a very, very low oil price environment. But then on the other side, you have countries like China and India who are going to benefit enormously from these low oil prices because they're net importers of oil. So it varies from one area of the world and from one country of the world to another. Uh, Let me say this. I believe going forward, however, oil prices will recover and By next year or the year after, you'll see $80, $90 a barrel again because a lot will depend, as you know, on the fracking and what happens in the U.S., which I think will mean a wind down given these low prices because many of the production areas are now underwater and would not be able to benefit from uh, good prices.
2: But if oil prices do return to $90 as soon as next year, then the economic boost for emerging markets would be short-lived.
3: There's another side to the story, which is very interesting, because a lot of these countries, with the low oil prices, have taken the opportunity to cut the subsidies on gasoline and diesel. As you know, Indonesia has done it. India is moving in that direction. China has already moved in that direction. Which means that when there's a recovery, the local population will be ready, and they'll have to be ready for higher prices of gasoline, diesel, and so forth. So. In some ways, this low price environment has enabled countries to embark on the reform measures which are so badly needed because a large part of their budgets were taken up from these subsidies of oil products such as gasoline and diesel.
2: The falling price of oil, of course, has returned volatility to the markets. Richard, can you bring us up to date?
4: Yes, well, it's continued to fall this morning. Uh, we're looking at West Texas Intermediate in Tokyo just under an hour ago, uh, falling 2.1% uh, to $56.62 a barrel. Uh, and Brent, too, is uh, flirting with the $60 level. So it looks as if it's continuing. Um, last week on the markets, as you know, they were hit quite hard with the Dow down 3% and Europe down pretty well between 5 to 7%. Uh, The only uh, markets that weren't as affected were markets in Asia, which uh, uh, saw Hong Kong down 3% over the week at 23,249. And the Shanghai Stock Exchange is one of the few to hold its own, pretty well ending flat, slightly up, in fact, at 2,939.
2: So Mark Lushini is the chief investment strategist at Jenny Montgomery Scott. Here's what he says about uh, markets and their volatility.
1: I I think what we're seeing is a revisitation of what we saw in the middle of September, which was we had full valuations in the equity market, and we've got those back again and then some, I think, at 17 times forward earnings, given what estimates are for 2015, being met with concerns about weak global demand. And obviously one of the factors that people are trying to tease out of this decline in oil prices is how much is attributed to supply abundance, how much is attributed to the strength in the dollar, and how much is being attributed to to weakening demand. And if it's the last that's taking a more majority position, which isn't our view, our base case is that it's still a minority position, but still important nonetheless, then that's a reflection on why stocks should be derated if the consequences ultimately are weaker growth overall. 44% of S&P 500 companies derive their earnings, their profits from overseas markets. And as a consequence, perhaps those earnings estimates need to be taken down and they're already in the process of coming down from 129, 130 at the beginning of the year to today a little over 127 dollars for 2015.
2: And Bill Gross of Janus, how does he adapt to these volatile markets?
5: The financial uh, complex is is highly levered. It's draining for levered returns in all forms and fashions, uh, whether it's borrowing, uh, you know, the Japanese yen or the euro in terms of a funding currency and reinvesting and either other emerging uh, currencies or uh, high-yield spreads or stocks. Um, and and when something changes, and you've uh, pointed that out uh, very ably in your recent broadcast in terms of the price of oil, when something changes and, and uh, you know, disorients markets in terms of the, the creditworthiness of either corporations or countries, uh, then money moves. And uh, when levered money moves and tries to seek a a safe haven. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you have violent, uh, violent price movements, high volatility. We see that with the VIX and, of course, uh, Treasuries as a safe haven.
2: All right. Let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent based in Washington. Good morning, Barry. Good
6: morning, Renika.
2: So, Barry, lots to talk about today. Let's start with Abe's sweeping victory. What do you make of this? Is it an endorsement of Abenomics?
7: Well, I think it is. I think that Japanese uh, people really want change, but they're very cynical, too, because this is a big ship It takes a long time to move and turn it, and I think that uh, Abe wants to pursue this, but he's made some mistakes along the way. I think this mandate is very important. Let's just hope, Renita, that he doesn't go in the direction of nationalism, but rather pursues this economic reform that is so central to his success.
2: Barry, do you think the sales tax, the delayed sales tax, is back on the cards now?
7: I do. I think he's got to stimulate the domestic economy. This is priority number one. I mean, the volatility of the yen, and the yen has bounced back a bit, is really not that important. That is not going to make the Japanese consumer buy more when the Japanese consumers looking backwards at a decade of deflation. And it's not going to make the business community happy if taxes are going to be higher. So I think uh, Abe has got to move on stimulating the domestic economy.
4: But it's been pretty tough, Barry, hasn't it? Because when he did try and increase taxes, you know, his second arrow, uh, it turned out that it uh, actually backfired. We had Jap- Japan going into recession.
7: Well, it's true. That's not the only reason I think that growth has been so sluggish in Japan for such a long time. But the stock market, you know, has really bounced back. I mean, there are signs that this is going to work. And I think it was a bold and correct decision to call the early election. I know the turnout was very low, but uh, he's got to move faster. It would be nice if he gets a break from the United States, in terms of moving ahead rapidly on TPP, this Trans-Pacific Partnership. But regrettably, I don't see any signs that that's going to happen.
4: Well, that's the other uh, side of the coin, too, uh, which people are saying is that this mandate uh, that Abe now has has impacts on foreign policy, especially in terms of perhaps its relationships with China.
7: Well, that's true, and I think this is a very delicate issue. I can't believe that the Japanese are impervious to what is happening in their neighborhood. They need friends. They don't want to antagonize the Koreans and the Chinese. I mean, that's, uh, that's the immediate neighborhood. And they've got to do cooperative deals and not, uh, not sort of rattle these favors.
2: So, Barry, uh, OPEC, uh, you know, switching to the topic of oil, uh, OPEC is refusing to cut production. What are your thoughts on that?
7: Well, you know, Renita, this is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you look at these charts, and it's pretty scary. This has been a 40% collapse in oil from a high of around, what, $108 a barrel on West Texas, all the way down, as as you both were saying, to, you know, in the mid-50s. Well, this is too much. This is not healthy. This has gone too fast. I think oil has got to stabilize, as Mark Mobius said, at around $80, 90 a barrel. Otherwise, it's going to have disruptive effects. But, as you've also said, there's no sign that this price decline is ending.
2: Okay, so this is quite different from the barrier of a week or two ago where you were talking about uh, consumers being able to put more money in their pockets and do more shopping, you know, with with everything that they're going to save.
7: Well, Renita, I don't see a contradiction. You're right. I've certainly changed my tune. And I was just seeing today that the average American motorist is getting a break of $700 just in lower oil prices if they continue at this level for several months. Well, so that is a big tax cut, and it is going to make the Christmas season good. But I don't think we want to go further. That's why I don't see the contradiction. It can't go on. I mean... If you look at this chart, the last time we had a correction, which was 2011, we saw the price go down to about 80. Well, look at it now. It's gone to 55. And if you go all the way back to the end of 2008, and we know what was happening with Lehman Brothers and the advent of the Great Recession, oil went to just over 40. So this is getting into the danger zone, as far as I can see.
4: Barry, we saw another piece of, well, well, it's hopefully good news over the weekend with the U.S. government, uh, or at least uh, Congress, managing to agree uh, on a budget. What was your general thoughts on that?
7: Well, I agree with you. I think it's quite important that we're not going to have any more of these uh, sudden shifts and this uh, kind of media frenzy about what's going to happen, is the U.S. government going to close. That's off the table. That's positive. But I have to tell you, these two parties are as divided as ever, and now there are splits both within the Republicans and within the Democrats. This compromise solution, this $1 trillion spending package, was attacked from the left, it was attacked from the right. So I'm not sure that it buys us any more than a year's time, but if the Republicans are smart, they will try to come up with some... Programs when they take over the Senate as well as the House in January. Thus far, you don't see any sign of that.
2: All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. That is Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent based in Washington, D.C. The Nikkei is down 243 points to 17,128. Australia's ASX is down 1.3% to 5,129. And Sol's Kospi also down 19 points to 1,902. Richard, why is the Nikkei down so much this morning given... uh you you know, this outstanding election victory yesterday.
4: Good point. I think the markets are probably reacting to what happened in Wall Street on Friday, first of all. You know, traders wake up in Asia uh, and just say, you know, what happened the night before in the US. So I think they're probably reacting to that initially. But if we are going to see Arbenomics, then it'll be market up and currency down again. All right. Well, we'll be back to talk more about technology trends. That's right after this message.
6: How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the
0: budget? Boost the economy.
5: Meet housing needs. Care for the
0: elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment?
6: Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline, 2810-3768.
2: The time is now 8.18 a.m., and technology tracking from IDC has compiled their list of top technology trends to watch for in 2015. Joining us now for further discussion is Sandra Ng. She is the Group Vice President uh, at IDC Asia Pacific. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, Sandra, um, there is a short list of the top uh, consumer-related technology trends for 2015, uh, your shortlist. Can you bring us up to date on this? What's on the shortlist? Sure.
6: Of course. Sure. Um, So I have, you know, I I came up with the top three uh, for this session. So the first one is really about Internet of Things. So if you're in the world of technology, you will know about IoT very, very well. And our prediction for 2015 is consumer brands, We already see, you know, sports brands like Nike and Adidas, but we're going to get other consumer brands like Ralph Lauren, Tech Hoyer coming into this space where they will combine Internet of Things technology with their own products and offer new capabilities and
2: experience in the marketplace. Can you give us an example of that? How do we see Sony uh, or, or Nike, I should say, combined with Internet of Things?
6: have been doing this basically to enhance the performance of the athletes of the consumer into sports so Ralph Lauren as an example um from you know the the consumer sector recently came out with what they call the tech shirt or the smart shirt and that's really putting in the internet of things sensor onto the polo shirt of Ralph Lauren and be able to enhance the performance of the wearer and this is going to be one of the many examples that we will see in 2015 um, here in the region as well as around the world.
2: But Sandra, how does a tech shirt enhance the performance of the wearer? Can you explain that?
6: Sure. So basically, how it actually works is that the sensor will be able to detect your heart rate and you know how you know, you're breathing, and there will be a device, typically your smartphone, your mobile device, that will be able to have that visualization and see how well and and there'll be a voiceover that will push you and say, you know, you're not basically meeting up to optimal performance. Your breathing is too slow, too fast and then you're supposed to adjust it accordingly if you want to be able to keep that optimal level for your
2: body type. Yeah, that sounds very handy for whether you're exercising or not. Richard, what do you think?
4: Well, I I think one of the problems is actually trying to get the data into some of these apps. You have a lot of health apps now, but how do you get it in? So the shirt's interesting, but I'd like to ask Sandra about uh, big data because, you know, you end up with this enormous amount of data, uh, some of which you can verify, some of which, which you can't. How do you actually handle it all?
6: Yeah, well, this this is this is the trick here, right? This I always say: big data has big potential. This is probably one of the most challenging um, areas from a technology standpoint. I mean, the technology is there, the platform is there, the tools are available. The, the the limitation is obviously the lack of expertise that we have. So, big data scientists and big data analysts, we don't have that many in the region and the ability for business and technology to come together to really make sense of data, to clean data, to ensure that data is obviously uh, being protected from a customer privacy and other compliance um, factor. These are all going to be challenges, but we see this particular technology, big data analytics, again... Um, to emerge really strong in 2015.
2: Sandra, doesn't this once again get into privacy issues? I mean, if companies are watching more of our online activities to gain a profile, let's say, of spending habits, uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of private information.
6: Yes. Well, there are basically two schools of thought here. So, yes, from a, from a business perspective, they need to ensure that it's compliant. So, more and more countries, including Hong Kong, their customer privacy regulations. So, that is obviously part of the compliance framework that businesses would have to ensure that they follow. So, but when you look at the cons-
4: So, so a, who do you think are going to be the winners here? Are they going to be the software companies or uh, are the hardware companies, like the mobile phone companies, likely to come through?
6: Well, I, it, it's, it's going to be a mix for the, the technology itself, there's going to be the hardware component and there's going to be the software play. So, the, and, and obviously for the mobile devices. The, more, the mobile devices manufacturers are already there. The visualization platform is already there. And it's going to be a mix. Like a big data analytics on its own has both hardware as well as the software elements to that. So it's not an either or a mutually exclusive um, segment.
2: Okay, Sandra, so quickly before we wrap up the segment, we've got Internet of Things, we've got big data analytics, and what is the third top trend that you see for next year?
6: Okay, so th- the third trend, and it's probably everybody's favorite because of the Alibaba IPO a uh, few months back, is this booming e-commerce sector, which obviously have m-commerce and, and social-based commerce and what we are going to see in 2015 is that this market not only is going to get a lot bigger, but a lot more players, new players are going to come in to this market. Now, these new players are going to be new to e-commerce, but they are not necessarily new in the marketplace. So they could come from, for example, the telecommunications industry. Uh, they could also be brick and mortar retail companies getting big into online as well as mobile commerce. So payments and commerce in the online and, and the mobile world will get a lot bigger. Um, here
2: in Asia. All right, Sandra, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Sandra Ng. She is the Group Vice President of the Practice Group at IDC Asia Pacific. Well, the latest analysis from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange on the first three weeks of trading of the Stock Connect shows that uh, trading has been quite quiet. Uh, Richard, can you bring us up to date on that?
4: Yes, the scheme which allows trading between Hong Kong and Shanghai Stock Exchanges saw an average northbound trading at just 25% of the daily quota. Uh, However, southbound training from the mainland to Hong Kong was much lower at only 4.5% of the average daily quota. So um, there's plenty of capacity still left.
2: All right. Well, in currencies, uh, the, re- the euro currently buys you 1.24 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is currently trading at 118 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 19 cents. Brent crude oil is at 60 dollars and 65 cents and gold is at one thousand two hundred and twenty one dollars and 90 cents per ounce. Last Friday turned out to be a noisier afternoon than most at UBS. Employees and traders decked out in fancy dress participated in a highly animated auction to raise funds for Operation Santa Claus. Last year, the company raised 5.3 million Hong Kong dollars, a whopping 5.3 million. I had a chance to ask the Hong Kong CEO Amy Lowe about their targets for this year.
7: We do our best, and we have really done our very, very best. But right
2: you're now. expecting a good year, yes? Oh, we expect a good year. We expect a good year. And when will we actually get to know? Oh, very soon.
4: I think probably end of today. Th- they should be good number, but, but we can't tell. we can't tell right now.
2: Why is Operation Santa Claus so important a charity for UBS?
6: This is the long-term relationship that we have built together, and um, you know, for
4: us, our kind of value proposition is as a leading organization, we want to make difference not just to the clients. We want to make a difference to the um, employee and also to the local community. And this is the long-term relationship that we have built together. And uh, the operations and costs that also allow us um, to really engage all the colleagues across the division. It's a branch-wide kind of uh, event, fundraising event for the good of the local community in which we operate. I think that's very meaningful. How does it engage
2: all
7: of the employees of UBS? For us, it kind of yeah. allows us to help out with with a great community fundraiser every year but also to d- unite all of our staff from across all the different areas of the bank um, to one cause so throughout the year you know all of our different teams they might have their own activities and um, and do their own team events and this is one of the things through the year that we really do as a branch so it's across you know it crosses all divides across all areas of the business and everyone really gets involved so it's just a great way to have sort of that one rallying cause that everyone gets behind and it's fun, it's fun, you know, it's something that everyone just really enjoys to do and to participate in, gets creative with, um, what we also do is really empower each of those areas to come up with their own activities, so everyone really gets creative in what they actually contribute and, um, and takes ownership for it. So.
2: That was uh, Hong Kong CEO Amy Lowe first, and then after that, uh, Employee Communications Director Lindsay Boucherl of UBS. So, uh, Richard, they were very secretive. They wouldn't tell us the exact amount uh, that they were going to raise this year, but they said uh, it was going to be a good year.
4: Well, let's hope they're bringing more in, especially from the directors.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, what better place to come from, yes? Okay, so uh, here we are at the end of the Monday. What should we be looking out for as we cast our eyes to the markets this week?
4: Well, uh, two pieces of news. One is uh, the Fed is going to have their last meeting of the year. I'm sure nothing will actually come of that, but um, it's something the markets will be looking out for, and also there will be some retail sales figures later in the week. Um, the uh, The big watch, though, will be on oil.
2: And the big watch or the big listen will be on you because you will be hosting Money for Nothing starting Thursday this week. I am, yes. Right? Okay, so... Business as usual. Business as usual. So Richard will be hosting the program all the way up into the early days of January. If there are any specific questions you would like to put to him, please uh, do post a comment on our Facebook page. And once again, that is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing on RTHK Radio 3. A quick look at the numbers: the Nikkei is down 263 points to 17,108. Australia's ASX is down 49 points to 5,147, and Seoul's Kospi is down 11 points to 1,909. This is Rinita Malhotrahora closing up. This morning for Money for Nothing. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. It will be mostly cloudy today, cool in the morning, with sunny periods during the day. The maximum temperature will be about 21 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 17 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 69%. And now it's time for the half-hour
0: news summary with Todd Harding. Australian police have cordoned off parts of the main business area in the centre of Sydney, where a gunman has taken hostages in a cafe. The BBC's John Donison reports. Hundreds of armed police have now sealed off Martin Place in the centre of Sydney. It's believed one or more gunmen have taken hostages at the Lint Cafe. ABC News has reported witnesses hearing the sound of gunfire, although this can't be confirmed. Television pictures show customers with their hands raised and pressed against the cafe's windows. A black flag with Arabic writing has been draped in one window, although it's not clear if it's an Islamic State flag. Earlier this year, a man from Sydney was arrested and charged with plotting to publicly behead a member of the public in Martin Place and drape them in an Islamic State flag. Police are expected to be in, begin clearing the last of the street blockades set up by pro-democracy protesters from 9.30 this morning. The site in yee Wall Street, Causeway Bay, has been occupied for two and a half months, but activists are not expected to put up any resistance to the clearance. The police have warned they'll arrest anyone who does. Authorities have said nearby streets, including Jardines Bazaar, Sugar Street and part of Gloucester Road, will be closed during the operation. There's been a mixed reaction to a new deal on climate change, agreed after two weeks of negotiations in the Peruvian capital, Lima. The European Union said the draft text was a step towards a global agreement next year, while India said it was happy that rich countries would continue to bear the lion's share of cuts in global emissions. Britain's representative at the talks, the Energy Secretary, Ed Davey, also welcomed the Lima deal. It's been tough, we've been up all night, we've sweated to get this deal but we have to do it for our children and our grandchildren. Uh, The threat of climate change is so severe uh, but today